yeah, at some point it really started to be used more and more and people are talking about it, uh, writing blog posts, talking at conference, uh, a lot of publicity around it, uh, support from uh, a lot of uh, different vendors uh, to integrate directly with uh, any kind of tool or backend you might be using. So the choice was pretty straightforward uh, to use OpenTelemetry because it's clearly defined as uh, the new standard. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. Yes, so the choice was pretty straightforward uh, to use OpenTelemetry because it's clearly defined as uh, the new standard. Like everybody is working on it from multiple companies. So you can see everybody going in the same direction. So there is no really discussion about whether to use it or not. But uh, yes, exactly. There is uh, some, once you start using it, the specific parts of the API are still moving. And uh, it can be a bit difficult to upgrade. Well, not difficult, but it takes time. Mm. So every time there is a, a new version, if you're still on a, something that's not GA, not version one something, you need to set some time aside to update uh, your code and so on. But the benefits are much more important than the little time you will lose upgrading your code to adjust to the new API because there are like exporters and for every systems out there. Uh, so yeah, it's a good benefit. I've been really surprised and delighted by the rapid uptake of open telemetry. I think that it's, it seems to me to be rolling out and getting traction much faster than I can think of any other like new standard, like certainly thinking about like open tracing and, and all those, like they were not nearly as prevalent, you know, two years in as, as open tracing has become, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think it was very slow at the beginning because uh, I've had it in my radar for a long time ago. And yeah, for a while, it seems like it was under development, uh, but nobody really used it. And uh, yeah, at some point, it really started to be used more and more, and people are talking about it, uh, writing blog posts, talking at conference, yeah. a lot of publicity around it. And uh, mainly it got a GA, so general availability, and uh, a support from uh, a lot of uh, different vendors uh, to integrate directly with uh, any kind of tool or backend you might be using. And yeah. I think with that much availability and uh, yeah, everybody starts using it, so yeah, you get uh, all of a sudden lots of people using it, and you don't really have a choice. Like it's uh, uh, right, right. everybody's working on it, everybody's using it. Yeah. So you're like, uh, do I stay on my old uh, API and that nobody really support? Or <laughs> it sounds like the kind of like virtuous cycle, right? Like where once something reaches the appropriate point, it rapidly gets better uh, because it is getting exercised often enough. It's definitely an idea that has not just come, but like it should have come a long time ago. Like I've been complaining for years about just like how we're so far behind where we ought to be as an industry in terms of like best practices for instrumentation and so forth, because it's just been like these crappy one-offs and hacks that everybody does slightly differently. You know, I kind of thought that the revolution would come much more looking like a structured log format, but it came in open telemetry form and 
And that's pretty cool. Otel supports these arbitrarily wide structured data blobs, and that's great. Yeah, and even if people are still using it, there are still a lot and lot of people uh, who are not using it and who are still uh, stuck with a uh, old way of uh, managing their uh, monitoring and observability systems. Yeah. They are pushing their logs to one side, twice to another, if they have twice. Uh, most likely it's uh, metrics to another side, no correlation. And uh, I think that's a really big advantage of uh, open telemetry is uh, to be able to build correlation uh, between the different sources uh, we have. I see too often uh, people who don't see the benefit of correlation and who are still treating their logs and their uh, metrics as very different systems, pushing one to Prometheus and Grafana, for example, and the other to Kibana and uh, no relation between them. And I think that's the real benefit of open telemetry is to bring that correlation as close as we can to the instrumentation of the code. And to eliminate vendor lock-in, right? Because theoretically, once you've instrumented your code with open telemetry, you can just switch from one vendor to the next pretty seamlessly without having, yeah. you know, which is huge because vendors have been, they haven't been competing on the value delivered to their users so much as they've been trying to get people stuck within their walled gardens. And, and I, I like this new world much more where users can switch and it's not that big of a deal. They don't have to go and re-instrument their entire system. This just feels like it's good for users. It's good for everyone. I guess that's the bet that Vincent was telling us at the beginning, right? That it's a small amount of work to update your code as Otel advanced towards a 1.0, but that it's still much easier than having to rip everything out and replace it if you were to change vendors. And that's kind of the appeal of the system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I totally agree. And uh, yeah, I take, uh, I wouldn't change uh, my few hours of updating my code uh, each time there is a new version for what we had before. <laughs> and now it's 1.0. So hopefully you shouldn't need to do that in the future. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now would be a good time for you to tell us about yourself and how you came to uh, use open telemetry at your workplace and kind of who are you and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Vincent. Uh, so I'm from France, as you can tell from my uh, lovely French accent. I'm now working at uh, Ubisoft, as uh, a French uh, game company, but it's been only like one week. So previously, I was working at uh, Dailymotion, the French YouTube. <laughs> and lately at Dailymotion, I was focused on uh, continuous delivery and uh, observability. And uh, so I managed to bring these two together. I'm a contributor to the Jenkins X open source project, uh, which we were heavily using at uh, the Emotion. And uh, yeah, I've been working uh, quite a lot uh, lately on bringing uh, some observability feature uh, to Jenkins X so that we can use them for ourselves uh, at Dailymotion, of course, and so that can benefit other people using the open source project. It's really great to see people investing in their tooling for developers, right? That too often people think about a CD system as a second thought, like, you know, oh, like, you know, it's fine if it's slow, but like, at Daily Motion, it sounds like you cared a lot about that developer experience. Kind of what motivated that? I think that was one main thing that was the so the first thing is that it's a critical part of our system. Continuous delivery is a critical part of our workflow, uh, how we develop and mainly how we push our application to production. So that's our flow. And uh, yeah, if it's broken, uh, it's going to impact everybody. Uh, we want to release often, release early, and so on. So yeah, that's a critical system. That's why we, we were investing in it, and we are still investing in it. One thing we wanted to have is uh, some uh, visualization on our workflow. Uh, if it's good, uh, if it's slower, what's impacting us, 
what makes developers uh, slower to push their, uh, their code in production and so on. So that's how we, we wanted to get some uh, business metrics on uh, so the classical uh, DevOps metrics, so lead time and so on. So we started with that. And because we're using an open source product, like we wanted to give that back because open source is only good if you can contribute back to it, uh, what you gain from other people that have been building it. So it started like that and we, we wanted, so we were also using observability for our own uh, application production and we wanted to go, um, to bring that all the value we gain from uh, be able to understand our production system. We wanted to have the same thing for our continuous delivery system. So our pipeline and so on. Uh, because most often, like when you have newcomers in the team, it's very difficult to understand what's going on, what it's taking time, where it's executing and so on. And I think that something like distributed tracing is a very good tool our practice to help you visualize uh, your pipeline and what's going on, all the steps and what's going on on this. So how it's executed. So for example, you're, you're, you're new to a company that's using uh, Jenkins X. You don't know how it works, like uh, the, the pipeline and so on. So you just have to click on, uh, on one button on, uh, on the UI next to the result of your pipeline. You can see that it's uh, executed in, uh, in Kubernetes cluster. Mm -hmm. It's going to pull some pod and so on. So you, you quickly understand what's happening. That makes a lot of sense. So when you're talking about making the build pipeline faster and more reliable and more visible, kind of what were some of the numbers when you started the project? Was it taking like days for code to reach uh, daily motions production? Was it taking uh, you know hours? Was it taking minutes? Like what order of magnitude? So on our project, uh, before we've been uh, really implementing continuous delivery, it was two weeks. Two weeks. Like the, the duration of two weeks. The, the duration of a sprint. Two weeks. <laughs> because we were doing it, so it was uh, years ago. But we were doing it like old school. So we were doing a release at the end of the sprint every two weeks and pushing that to production. And it was even worse because uh, once we had a release, it went into a two weeks uh, window of uh, validation before it can go to production. So it can it will be one month at some point. So that was one of the reasons. So how did you start hacking away at that? What was the first thing you did and how much time did you recover? Uh, so the first thing we did uh, is uh, trying to apply uh, all the good practice that other people in the industry are, uh, have already defined and using and we get results on it. We know it's, uh, it's good practice. So every time we have a pull request now, what we do is uh, every time it's merged, so uh, we are doing more tests at the pull request level using what we call in Jenkins X preview environments. So we are spinning up a specific environment for the pull request to run our test and so on. So we are shifting left. So all the tests that were previously executed after the release are now executed before the pull request is even merged to master. We did the same thing at Honeycomb, and it was hugely impactful, the yes. idea of setting up a front-end binary per pull request or a telemetry ingest binary per pull request, and it made it so much faster to catch things. Exactly. Uh, once you start using it, like you, you can go back. <laughs> And uh, once a pull request is merged, it's going to create automatically uh, a new release uh, deployed to staging. And uh, for the moment, we have a manual deployment to production. But uh, yeah, for some application, it can be automatic. So that shrunk it from two weeks to a month to how long? Like basically a few hours? Yeah, or minutes. Yeah, it can go. Uh, if we have a quick fix, uh, it can be uh, minutes. Like uh, when it's merged, it's uh, a few minutes to be deployed in production. How long does it take you to, if you need to just like ship one line of code, like how fast can that go out? 
Uh, that depends on the project <laughs> because we have some that have a, a very small uh, compilation time, like uh, Go application, which are very fast to compile, and yeah. some other uh, like uh, C++, which are a, a bit. We have a big uh, C++ application, so it can be yeah. much lower. Yeah. So yeah, it can be like uh, smallest time will be uh, like I'd say ten minutes mm -hmm. between ten minutes and uh, half an hour. I'd say. Do you automatically deploy after each merge? Yes, to staging, to staging. but for mm -hmm. uh, production, it's still manual. You don't just let things pile up, right? Like the idea is it goes to staging, you look at it, and then you press the button, right? Yeah, most of the time, yes. Mm -hmm. That depends on the change. So sometimes we have uh, like changes that are not really related to our production application. For example, somebody uh, changing test, unit test, or, uh, or readme, or something like that. So we don't really care about deploying that. Are you planning to hook it up to production as well? Yes. Yeah, yes, it was planned. Excellent. So uh, just take a bit of time because it's a big mindset change oh, yeah. to automatically deploy to production. Yeah. But uh, yeah, for the moment, uh, like one click because it's we're doing it like GitOps uh, style. So it's uh, creating a new pull request in a, a GitOps environment repository. Uh, so it's just merging the pull request and then uh, yeah, automatically deploying. Let's talk about the cultural changes here. Were people scared? Yes. Yeah, say more about that. It's mainly people in taking care of the platform uh, because all of a sudden, they're not necessarily the one pushing the button. Mm -hmm. So like it's having somebody else pushing change inside their platform that they're responsible for. Uh, yeah, that can be difficult. But it takes a few months, I'd say, before people are fully adapted to it. Trust. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The change surely wasn't overnight, though. So kind of, I think Charlie asked this towards the beginning, like, what were kind of some of the intermediate things that you first got people doing? Uh, you said you did the kind of pull request uh, based, uh, you know, shifting that testing left. That must have gotten you, you know, from two weeks to like a day or two, right? But kind of what got that frequency to minutes to hours? What was that kind of next step after the pull request? Did you have to do a lot of like parallelizing of tests and like, refactoring your, your test stuff to run faster? Yes, uh, that was like pretty much a technical phase. So it was not uh, very difficult to do. When it's difficult, it's when you have a people mindset to change. Mm. Yeah, changing your, your, your test, uh, in, like integration test or end-to-end -end test or however you call them to run in a different environment and take a bit of time because it's not something that's top priority. Uh, usually, uh, so for us it was because we 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 spent some time aside to make sure we, we could have a, a smooth workflow and be able to push quickly to production. But that's not what the real difficulty is. The real difficulty, as you said, is a uh, changing people mindset. How did you get consensus, or how did you? Was there any difficulty like between product who wanted engineers to be spending time on features, and you know you? And I assume other people who wanted them to be spending time on, you know, or did you actually do all of this work for them? No, there was a, a big consensus in the team because that's a, so it was a new product. We were building a new product. Mm -hmm. So like for the first year, year and a half, it was uh, only building. So nothing in production. So that was not an issue, like our uh, way of working, like releasing every two weeks, even if it's bad, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it now, even for something that's not in production. But at the beginning, it was not impacting us. And when we started to be in production and uh, we wanted to have quick fix and it took uh, two weeks or one month, that's when everybody felt the pain, mm -hmm. like both the developers, the product team, the management. So everybody was aligned to say, we have a big issue and we need to fix it. So there was mm -hmm. no real issue of uh, 
that being that being the priority for everybody. Mm-hmm. It also sounds like you're able to reduce the scope by trying to only change one team first before you started rolling out that practice across the entire company. Yes. But the other team in the company were doing things a bit differently, so they didn't have the same issue. Uh, they were already uh, doing uh, having a more smooth uh, workflow. So it was not really, really a challenge. They have different challenge, but uh, not that one. <laughs> so you decided that you wanted to make things faster. Kind of where did start the idea of kind of instrumenting the Jenkins workflow specifically come in? Like what were these things that you discovered uh, for the first time when you implemented it? So it was a, a bit later uh, when that workflow was uh, well implemented. I'm sure you you have the same experience of uh, after um, weeks, months, years, you take a pipeline, build pipeline or whatever, and it's going to be slower and slower and slower, like seconds, a few seconds and so on, until at some point uh, people are going to stop and say, okay, this took like used to take one minute and now it's taking 10 minutes. Uh, what's wrong? We need to do something now. Right. And we had a few applications where the pipeline took more and more time slowly and slowly. And that's when we, we wanted to measure it to be able to put alerts on them uh, so that we can react before the developer get uh, fed up with it. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted to have a way to debug and to understand what's taking time. So that's how it started, debugging purpose. So basically you'd you know gone from two weeks, you know, if, if your build takes two hours after two weeks, it's not a big deal. Whereas once you're pushing every hour, it taking 10 minutes opposed to one minute starts mattering. I see. Exactly. So then that was kind of your incentive to instrument it to prevent it from regressing and to make it faster. Yes. So that was one of the use cases we had. Uh, we had uh, sometimes a few pipelines that were slow taking like half an hour, but everything else was taking 10 minutes and we had to understand why. So sometimes it was uh, because maybe it was uh, scheduled on a new node that to pull all the container images and so on. So yeah, we had to put some light on what was happening under the execution of the pipeline because people usually see just the logical steps but uh, when it's running in a, in a Kubernetes uh, cluster, you have lots and lots of pieces underneath. And it's, it can be very difficult to understand uh, everything that can happen. Right. It's easier to understand a monolithic process, but the instant you make it a distributed <laughs> system, it has all of the problems of a distributed system. Exactly. So it's using Tecton. Uh, it can schedule a new node uh, if you don't have enough uh, available resources on the existing nodes. Uh, lots of things can happen. So it wasn't just that people's tests were getting more complex. It was that the underlying infrastructure executing it was experiencing problems that you needed to surface in some way. Both. So we had both issues. Uh, but it's true that some pipelines were getting more and more complex. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that was our main uh, incentive uh, for doing that. And as we did that, we, we got another benefit, uh, which I think is very important is that uh, when you start to put the light on um, how is your pipeline uh, running and what's happening inside of it, I think it's very interesting to for newcomers in the team to understand what's the pipeline and how it's running. And that's something we, we didn't expect at the beginning, uh, but it's the same when you have a distributed tracing for your production system. It helps you understand how the system works. Not un- you don't only use it for debugging, but you also use it to, to understand how the system works, how a request flows uh, between different uh, microservices. Right, it's almost a form of documentation that your system is generating on its own. Yeah, we can say that, yes. 
dynamically generated documentation, so you don't need to maintain it. So <laughs> you get the benefit of documentation without the pain of documentation. <laughs> now, I guess one of the questions here is like, you know, hey, so you mentioned that some of the pain came from Kubernetes. You know, was the benefit from Kubernetes worth the pain? Like kind of what are the, some of the trade-offs someone should use when deciding, should I use Kubernetes uh, to run my build system or should I kind of keep it hosted on one box or a small set of boxes? So for the first question, uh, is the benefit uh, more important than the cons? I'd say yes, without hesitation, but maybe I'm yes because uh, I've been working on Kubernetes for a while now. So of course, once you're used to it, you can say, no, it's easy Kubernetes. Like well, nobody say that, that. <laughs> but at least you, you have a, a few basic understanding of the main component you're using. You feel at home inside of it. Uh, somebody that doesn't know Kubernetes will have a, a hard time understanding it. Uh, it's sure. After that, your, your question of should you use Kubernetes for your build system? I think the answer depends on are you already using Kubernetes or not? So if you are you already using Kubernetes to deploy, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely, you should use it too for your build system. Like you already have uh, all the knowledge and uh, the infrastructure, so reuse it and uh, you will see all the benefits. You should make it mesh as much as possible, just generally speaking. The idea that you could have a staging that matches prod is a total myth, but you should try to make it, you know, be composed of the same elements as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. Like uh, having a staging or pre-production environment, which is 100% uh, the same as production is uh, is impossible. But yes, uh, if you could try to get like uh, with a minimum effort uh, to get it as close as you can yeah, and uh, don't take too much time trying to make it exactly the same. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. And in that we're going through this same transition right now um, in that we're starting to run some of our production workloads on Kubernetes for the first time. And it's a lot of knowledge for people to keep in their heads of how does Kubernetes work and how does the old virtual machine based workflow work? Yeah. Right. Like we wouldn't want to do that in the long term, but kind of in the short term, we're in this in between state. That sounds like you're saying like, you know, don't stay in the in between state forever. Yeah, and if you're not using Kubernetes for your production system, I wouldn't recommend to use Kubernetes for the build system because, yeah, it's going to be a lot of complexity for something which is critical, but which is not your production system, unless you are a big company and you have lots of energy, And <laughs> but <laughs> usually in that case, you're already on Kubernetes. Right. Anyway. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about the work you did to integrate open telemetry and Kubernetes, because some of that sounds like it was Jenkins specific, but some of it was more generic. Kind of, how did you uh, come to the decision to instrument Kubernetes rather than instrumenting Jenkins X code itself? Yes, the challenge, uh, the idea was to be able to get distributed traces. Well, it was not distributed at the beginning, but traces for our pipeline. So just a visual representation of uh, the different steps. Uh, that was the beginning. And then uh, when talking about it, we said we should be able to get tracing for everything that's happening underneath, so all the components. So Jenkins X is a continuous delivery platform, so open source and so on, based on Kubernetes. And uh, it's using Tecton, another open source component, which is used to execute the pipeline. What we wanted to was to be able to see what Tecton was doing, what was Kubernetes doing, like pulling pods, uh, scheduling pods, uh, scheduling a new node, and so on. So we could have instrumented all the components in Jenkins X, all the dependencies of Jenkins X, like Tecton and so on, mm -hmm. and Kubernetes, 
so that will have taken a long time. And still, you still have a, a few components like uh, the cluster autoscaler. You will need to instrument two and so on. So it's like a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you have a, a system, a platform like Kubernetes, uh, where the main benefit of Kubernetes is uh, the API, uh, you're starting to think, maybe I can use the API. So what we did was uh, using the API to retrieve all the different uh, custom resources we wanted, like uh, Jenkins X uh, pipeline, Tekton pipeline, and task run, and so on, Kubernetes pod, and the Kubernetes events. We receive all this information about everything. And we, with that, we've been able to build the tree uh, from the pipeline to everything that's related to that pipeline. So the pod, which is linked to the task, which is linked to the pipeline, and so on. All the events related to that pod mm -hmm. and send, uh, generate twice using open telemetry so that it can be pushed to whatever backend you prefer. So in the case of uh, Jenkins X, for example, uh, we're shipping with the Grafana stack uh, by default because it's open source too, so it's easier. But if people are already using a different backend or um, whatever, uh, they can. Uh, they just have to switch a configuration flag and uh, it can be pushed to somewhere else. Yeah, it sounds definitely like... Essentially, if you instrument the app, you're not going to have visibility into the control operations that Kubernetes is doing. Yes. So therefore, you may as well just instrument the control operations the, to begin with so you don't have kind of missing time uh, where it's just, you know, spinning, waiting for the pod to spin up, mm -hmm. right? You'd rather get the data about the pod spin up before the application code in the pod starts running. Yeah, so it's not 100% perfect, but it's something that you can do in a few hours and you get uh, quick results because uh, Kubernetes uh, API is uh, really awesome. It's very easy to do and uh, you get uh, huge benefits from it. And that's exactly what we wanted. Yeah, it's one of those promising things about automatic instrumentation is that the more ubiquitous it becomes, the more likely people are going to be to then start digging in and adding more instrumentation later. Yes, exactly. What was your experience with the uh, Grafana ecosystem, kind of forgetting the baseline levels of observability? I really like it. I really like the fact that you, you, you get a, a full platform where you can get everything in it, your logs, your uh, metrics, and your trace, and you get correlation between them. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can be Grafana, but uh, other people are doing it too. Uh, Elastic is doing it too with uh, Kibana and uh, other vendors. So you have a lot of ways to do it, but I think yeah, the, the big benefit is correlation and uh, you can build a dashboard where you, you have your logs, you can uh, filter on a specific time range and you can see the, the log errors, you can see the, the graph with your metrics. Yeah. You can jump from that to the trace. Right, the friction of switching tools is just so high, right? Like it's, it is definitely a lot better to see all of those things in the same place and named consistently. Yes, and uh, when you get benefit from uh, uh, both open telemetry being able to, to do correlation uh, by inserting, for example, some tags or labels uh, between the logs and the trace and the metrics, your backend, be it Grafana or whatever, yeah. is able to reuse that uh, to build all the visualization part for it. And uh, yeah, it's great. Well, it's great. It's so much better than what we had uh, a few years before that, uh, yeah, for the moment, I think it's great. Maybe in a few years, we're going to say, yeah, yeah well, it was nice. <laughs> right, exactly. From what we were talking about before the podcast, you were using a kind of APM vendor um, before that, so. Yeah, and yeah, both of them at the same time for different use cases. <laughs> well, switching gears a little bit, 
you recently switched jobs and what was it like switching companies mid pandemic? Well, it was more at the end of the pandemic. <laughs> oh, is it over where you live? <laughs> no, not totally over. Not <laughs> no, over it's here. not over yet. <laughs> well, it was everything remote. So everything was already remote. So it was a uh, old interview and everything remote, but I think now we are used to it. <laughs> and it's great to be able to see uh, new people, new new way of working. It brings some uh, some new challenge. Mm-hmm. What do you love about the engineering culture of your new job so far? It's so big and there are so much energy and lots of different projects and lots of people with a lot of mm-hmm. of uh, different background and uh, I think it's something that's good. It's to be able to see new people with different background, uh, different experience. And uh, being able to compare that and uh, to challenge yourself, I'm used to do that that way because for mm-hmm. the past four years I've been doing it that way, and other people are doing it differently. It can challenge you. So yeah, I love that particular uh, charity blog post where she talks about the idea of kind of you know if you stay in one place too long and kind of become prematurely senior there, you get into a rut just by being the the person who's been there the longest rather than challenging yourself and learning new things. Yes, exactly. Well. Thank you so much for being with us, Vincent. I feel like I learned a lot about hotels today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And about Jenkins. Don't forget Jenkins. And Jenkins. Jenkins sex. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I have blocked out most of my memories of Jenkins. I, I remember the little Java console, and, and it's all dark after that. It's just, like, erased. <laughs> so just one, one little detail. It's not Jenkins. It's Jenkins sex. So it's a completely different platform. It's a <laughs> project. It's a totally written in Go. It's, it's cool now. Is that what you're saying? Is, yeah, it's, it's cool now. Totally new code base and written in Go. <laughs> it's cool now. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.